2: I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report take things in a very different direction today as last week at the ECI Impact 2019 conference, I moderated a panel on the ECI High Quality Program Framework Assessment Tool. On the panel were Steve Scarpino, Karen Clapsaddle, and Suzanne Milton. Each one of these individuals have been involved with the HQP, or High Quality Program, and have begun, or, or rather were part of the team that helped put together the uh, framework assessment. We talk about that framework assessment, the high quality program requirements, and how they all work together. It is about an hour long panel, the uh, audio, although from a conference, is uh, pretty good. So will really not have trouble hearing, I would really urge you to listen to this podcast because you'll learn about the genesis of the HQP program set up by uh, uh, ECI and how the framework assessment can help you in your compliance program going forward. I know you will enjoy it and learn a lot from the panel. I certainly did. This podcast is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network.
3: And so it's my pleasure to introduce to you Tom Fox, who will be facilitating our next discussion. Tom is, he has my favorite title, the Compliance Evangelist. (laughs) He's the author of the Compliance Handbook, which is the number one new bestseller on Amazon.com through its initial run. If you're not familiar with Tom's work, he is the author of an to, to uh, the, Let me try that again. The author of the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, and he's the founder of the Compliance Co- Podcast Network. I would encourage you to check out Tom's writings because he's very thoughtful on what's happening in the industry, enforcement trends. We were really pleased that Tom was willing to join us for this event, and he's going to introduce you to the other speakers. So welcome, Tom.
2: Uh, thank you, Pat. The um, uh, folks to my left, are Suzanne Milton with US Foods, Karen Clapsaddle, hopefully I got that right, Ethics Director at Lockheed Martin, and then Steve Scarpino, Director of Ethics and Compliance at BP in Houston. And uh, you're in for a real treat today because these folks have been involved with and uh, continue to work with the framework assessment tool for high quality programs. Uh, with what we heard yesterday from Brian Minkowski, I think uh, you're going to see how their work has tied to what the Department of Justice has come up with in the new 2019 guidance. So not only will it be an incredibly informative panel, but we'll give you some key takeaways that you can take back to your organization to tie the practical realities and results of what you do as a compliance professional to what the government says it's looking at when it evaluates best practices compliance programs for companies that uh, find themselves under investigation uh, for FCPA violations. So with that, what are the five elements of a high quality program?
1: So I think you all uh, you heard quite a bit yesterday from Pat Harned talking about the HQP report. So what I'll do uh, just for a few minutes is just reflect a bit on the development of that report and try to share with you, in my view, some of the key uh, elements that make it a unique and useful report, and hopefully set the stage for Karen and Steve to explain to you sort of how it led to the measurement tool and the maturity model that we're also going to talk about today. So I'll just start with um, the pre report was grounded in the practical experience of practitioners. I think you heard Pat say yesterday that the, the 23 panel members included 14 practitioners, three former DOJ leaders, three attorneys from firms that worked in various parts and angles of our practice, both corporations and individuals, representing both corporations and individuals, and then two people from academia who had studied our field extensively. And while there were many strong points of views, the discussions of the panel were always grounded in creating a report that could be effectively used by practitioners and the leaders that they work for in doing the work of compliance every day. And so we'll talk more about the report itself, but hopefully you see that in the way that the report was written. The second thing I would note is that the report was expansive in the acknowledgement that our field is informed by other fields. And you just heard Cynthia talking about an example of behavioral psychology, also human resources, internal audit, risk, safety. Those were some of the foundational elements that were researched before the panel began to speak. And in our conversations, there was a lot of discussion about the practitioner's understanding that in order to be excellent in our practice, we have to look outside of our field and learn from other fields. Um, Because all of us that practice every day know that we're working with human beings, and lots of other fields have the same requirement to engage human beings. So we have to be always looking for how we can learn from other fields. Um, There was a particular effort on the panel to understand the perspective of the reporter or whistleblower, and I would say, I give particular credit to Pat Harned. She made sure that we had people on the Blue Ribbon Panel who had actually represented whistleblowers, and there was very substantial discussion in the panel itself about writing the report in a way that we would truly recognize reporters and make sure that the way that we discuss them made it clear that respect and encouragement for reporters is a foundational part of our work. Um, And I think uh, many of you may have had this experience as well. Having the conversation with an attorney on the panel who actually represented whistleblowers was one of the most enlightening conversations that the panel had. She gave a lot of help to us in being able to articulate the report in such a way that would emphasize the treatment of reporters as central to how a program is effective. Um, The next thing I would emphasize about the report is that it was rigorously debated. (laughs) Uh, There was enormous amount of rigorous discussion of practitioners with lots of years of experience who had very strong views about what was foundationally important for a high quality program. Um, I I know Pat recalls there was a point at which some of the panel members basically thought the whole report should be about culture uh, because of their experience telling them that essentially culture eats strategy for breakfast. So extremely robust discussions, but discussions that led us, I think, um, ultimately to find really core pillars of what needs to be part of a program. And I hope that you see those in the five elements today, strategy, risk, culture, uh, accountability, and the treatment of reporters. Those really came out as sort of the core fundamentals, but that really did come out of enormously rigorous and challenging discussions. Some of the the most challenging days of my career, um, just working through those discussions and driving the group to consensus. The last thing I would point out about the report, I think, just is, again, another word familiar to all of you, is that the principles were linked to examples so that we could operationalize the values that we were articulating. I think I I credit Ernie, uh, who at one of the LPEC sessions this week was talking about, you know, let's operationalize that. When you say that, what, what does that look like? I think that was a critical part of our discussion. It was the reason that there was an appendix added to the to the report that actually talks about practices, both what does an HQP look like and what does it look like when it's not an HQP. So hopefully that, um, that practical approach um, supports being able to use the report more effectively. And then I think the, the other point is that once we put those practices in, and started to operationalize what an HQP looks like, it led us naturally to the next phase, which is, how do I assess my program? That really led us to the measurement tool, to the maturity model that Karen and Steve can talk a little bit more about. So bottom line is, um, I was privileged to be a part of the process, but I do think that the report itself sort of embodied the unique nature of ECI and that it was geared to practitioners uh, it's very practical. It was grounded in great research. Um, and hopefully, you'll find it useful in your everyday practice.
2: Karen, yesterday or earlier when we were preparing for this panel, you had a great phrase, which was, without data, you were just another person with an opinion. How does the maturity curve, the assessment tool, and the metrics actually help you to answer that question?
3: Yeah. I. I... I think that uh, I actually saw that as a quote from part of Pat's chart yesterday. I think she did a really good job of giving a complete overview of our working group and the resulting product of the measurement framework. Um, And a side plug, if you haven't joined a working group or haven't participated in one, there are several that exist already, and there'll be spin-offs as part of this activity. Get with Casey and join. Doesn't mean you have to be the leader. Doesn't mean you have to make it a second career. But I tell you, it is invaluable. The networking that you get out of it, the knowledge sharing, the discussions with your practitioner peers. I strongly encourage you. Uh, I think it was a, maybe 2017 uh, at one of our meetings when they had the big sign-up boards, and you know, there's always one in the corner that says, "How do you effectively measure your program?" And I'm drawn to that. I've I've been with Lockheed Martin for a lot of years, and more than a dozen in ethics, and that's sort of the the. Nirvana, like how do, you, uh, how do you respond to the federal sentencing guidelines requirements of, hey, contractor, periodically assess the effectiveness of your program to prevent and detect criminal conduct. And as the group began to form and we started having these conversations, I don't think anybody said, I don't assess my program. But there was a lot of different approaches. And nobody could say, slam dunk, I have this mastered. It's 100% use my program. And as the discussion ensued in the working group, We naturally led to this solid foundation of the Blue Ribbon Panel Report from 2016 because they took into consideration the requirements of the federal sentencing guidelines and all the various regulations and best practices and condensed it down into these five core principles. And that was the perfect launch point for our group. Um, We ended up with about 12 or so dedicated, engaged uh, working group members. And I am going to take a moment and, and call them out. Steve Scarpino from BP and myself, co-chairs, but we were just part of (laughs) the rest of the working group. Of course, uh, Suzanne Courtney Walleyes that you've met uh, from Northrop Grumman, Paul Zuckman from BUNGE, Tim McLaughlin, L3 Technologies, Linda Trevignon, academic from Penn State. Many of you know Linda. She had great insights from an academic and research perspective. Callie Swanson from U.S. Bank. Um, Maren S- 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 Gunza- say Mayor Sigurdsson, S- thank you, BP, a colleague of, of Steve's that helped us with a lot of the writing and the consolidation of the materials. Uh, Rod Grandin, who was a former Air Force Department official who is now with um, Affiliated Monitors, had a great oversight once we got it close to the finish line to look at it and, and give us his perspective. Um, Jerry Dawes, who's here from Con Edison, um, Jack Gerardo, and Rob Canning from, from uh, Ernst & Young. So it's a really good group of energized and opinionated and, um, and insightful and sharing people that represented a lot of industries, a monitor, and an academic. So we asked everybody about their programs. Um, and we locked on to this Blue Ribbon Panel Report as a foundation, uh, just sort of uh, Sort of uh, uh, just strategically, we divided the team up. A few people had each principle. And we started with a maturity model concept to say, look, if a high-quality program, all the key elements are here. Let's call that optimized. And let's flip the reverse to call underdeveloped. And then work in the middle slots of about what the other two to three levels of this maturity model looks like. The results are what you have, the high-quality measurement framework. I could ask you to raise your hand if you've actually printed it out or looked at it. It's a very handy little gadget. Uh, If you have not you should. There's a wealth of information here. Steve's going to talk about the methodology and what it does and does not do for you from a programmatic perspective. But I can tell you that this is a treasure trove of information, and it's directly linked to the Blue Ribbon Panel Report. You not only have, I feel like an infomercial, but I will just do it anyway. Here we go. You not only have, the five levels of maturity for each of the principles, the real gold is as you get further back into the document with these additional resources, it tells you, what should I measure? What questions should I consider? Where are the sources of that information? And where are some uh, resources that ERC already has? And what are leading principles? So what are others doing that you might want to adopt? So the document itself, it is uh, at the beginning stages, Much like we heard from DOJ yesterday, it is our document. And as you begin to use it, we want your feedback. We want to continue to hone it and make it a better product and make it more applicable to everyone. So if you haven't, download it and have a look at it. Um, I think I've covered what I'm going to cover. Uh, the purpose of some of these breakout sessions throughout this conference is to hone in on a, one of the principles and talk about the applicability and what you can use from these resources to identify strengths and weaknesses in your program and continually to improve your program. So, okay. partner in crime. I'll talk a little you. bit
0: about the methodology. You you've touched, touched on it there. Um, Actually, one of the easiest parts of starting was taking the HQP benchmarks and saying that that really truly is the best of the best, and that is the optimizing column. So we literally took it verbatim from the blue ribbon panel report and said, that is what a high quality program actually is. But in order to get to those other four levels of maturity, um, the way the team went about it was said, okay, we now know what the best is. Maybe the easiest is to go to the opposite end of the spectrum and we had a lot of debate as to what that was uh, as far as its title. Um, It didn't end in an ING, it's underdeveloped as you can see on the final uh, 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 presentation we have. But the underdeveloped was really to take into account those corporations who really have not addressed ethics and compliance yet and they're going to get after it. So it's underdeveloped, but it's also for those organizations who are struggling to move up that maturity curve. So, when you see that word underdeveloped, it is intended to cover both of those scenarios, so that the tool that we put together hopefully can be used by everybody, um, whether it's you know big, small company, profit, nonprofit. It's the intent was that every organization could could actually use that. Um, so we, um, where is it? That was the. Um, so we, the difficult part was finding the gradations between the next three levels of the uh, the framework. And that, I will tell you, took months uh, from the team. It was a lot of hard effort by the, the group of 12 people that we had uh, looking at the gradations between what would a good program look like. So what we ended up settling on, if you look at those five maturity levels, um, the managing column, which is the fourth column, is what we decided is really what should be considered a good ethics and compliance program. Um, And optimizing, while it's at the top end of the scale, it may not be appropriate that every organization truly has their ethics ethics and compliance program at the optimized level. Things at the optimized level, for example, would be including things like here sharing with others the lessons learned from your ENC program to to have industry be even better in it. But just managing the program is something we actually we talked about with the the uh, U.S. Department of Justice to try to give to them a perspective of on this scale of maturity, what would you consider, what would we consider as pract- practitioners, a good program. So I think it might have been the first time that the DOJ had heard the practitioners talking about that optimizing is not necessarily where every company should be benchmarked against, but it's really that managing column, the fourth column. And I think that every company has to look at it for themselves based on their own risk to say, where do I want my program to be? And do I want to spend the extra money to move from managing optimizing because that is a big step and what we're trying to say is not every organization needs to be at the optimized level so uh, in the end what we ended up with is this five levels of maturity we did talk about you know is it three levels is it four levels is it five levels we felt that five levels was appropriate to be able to give the distinction between where you are in an organization the other thing that we had a lot of debate upon was the numeric values of these columns. You could say that the underdeveloped, you're a 1, and optimized is a 5. One thing that's really important is we just don't think that this is a formula. And I think we heard that yesterday from Brian from the DOJ as well, that it's not a formula. It's in, in the guidance they put out yesterday. It's not a formula. It's not a checklist. You each have to look at it individually. So I think that... Um, it does provide a lot of opportunity for each company to look at it how they would apply it but the other thing i would say it's not just a single data point it's not just how did we do in the assessment you have to look at the assessment uh, results with other information that you have in your organization so maybe many of you have an employee engagement survey that is a lot of critical information and what you're going to want to do is correlate that information to what your results from the, the tool actually are so as an example if as you do the tool and it it looks like you have a good speak up culture, um, what happens when you match that up against the employee engagement survey and you have a question on on there that talks about the willingness to speak up and no fear of retaliation, if that number is like 68% and yet on this tool you end up what looks to be up in the upper range between managing and optimizing, you have a major disconnect. And so I just want to be very clear that this is a first out tool this is an exciting time actually for us, especially yesterday and today, to see the number of people that have actually you know, used the tool behind it um, because this is our first opportunity to get feedback. And we really need that feedback, uh, and I can see this, this is going to be a continuous improvement thing for, for many years with this tool based on you, the practitioners. The other thing that's, I think, extremely important here is, it's again, it's not about a formula. The most important thing, and I will say, this is where the next iteration of the tool, I don't think we're there yet, but the next iteration of the tool has to bring in that subjectivity and your expertise as ENC professionals. So we may talk about that a little bit more in some of the questions and answers, but I do want to say I think it's a great first out tool. It is certainly not the end tool, and it's your feedback that's really going to make it a lot better. So I think that's a little bit of view of how that methodology, the five levels was created, But most importantly, we're not asking or looking for, and we're trying to influence the government to not think of optimizing is where everybody should be sitting. But managing, I would think nobody wants to be less than managing.
2: So I'm sorry, I should have said in my opening remarks we were going to try to limit the first round of comments to about 20 minutes to leave as much time as we could for questions. So uh, this is your chance to really ask questions of people who've been intimately involved with this process for multiple years, so I hope you'll take advantage of that uh, if you have any, but um, I think I see somebody in the back. Are you, you have the
4: mic? Okay. I do. Um, Just a, a comment, having been a monitor, having been with people like Carrie Penman and Nancy Higgins when we started this 30 years ago, making it up as we go along, and listening to management constantly saying what's best in class, tell me what other companies are doing, how do I measure this. Uh, I've done this with with companies, Uh, I've used this, and I have to honestly tell you what, what you're going to feel when you have a former prosecutor walk in the door who's never managed a compliance program and they start to tell you what you should be doing in managing your program. If you have a roadmap like this, and we can get people organized to look at this as the way to assess a program and its maturity, we're all gonna be on the same page rather than back in the good old days of making it up as we go along. I mean, this is this is 10 times, 100 times better than what Pat Harnett tried to do for years with toolboxes um, because that was our first innovation. But you really need to think in terms of this is going to be the answer to management constantly when they say, show me, give me examples, explain, tell me what best in class is. So I I really give you a lot of credit. I think this is very innovative and I think this is really gonna move the program along. Thank you.
2: Great, thank you. Steve, if I could pick up on one of your points and ask you to perhaps expand a little bit about the concept uh, or the negative concept or the negative of one size fits all. We obviously heard yesterday from Brian Minkowski that the Department of Justice does not view that as positive at all. They view each company uh, as a standalone and that you must assess your risk and then manage your risk. How would you uh, say that the tool helps a company um, not only fulfill the obligation to assess and manage its risk, but give a documentary evidence if a regulator, uh, as Pat suggested, comes in and says, we want to see what you did.
0: Uh, great question. Um, as I said, I think the tool is, I mean, it's basically a template. When you look at it, the framework is a template. Um, and it really should be all risk-based. And that is consistent with what we heard yesterday from Brian as well. So I think if you start with the premise that you're taking a risk-based approach, as no two companies are exactly alike, um, I think it provides that, that framework. And as I said, whether you're a large, small, profit, nonprofit, global, regional, local, Organization, you should be able to find a way to, to utilize that and, and use it on a risk-based perspective. So um, I, I think from that perspective, it's, it's, and if you've seen what the tool now does, is, and we've got it up on the chart here, uh, you can start to see where you're mapped up against benchmarks and potentially within a specific industry, and you're gonna see where you might be weaker in certain areas than others, and I think that can be where you might set action plans to then address? How do I get better in that space? The other thing that's quite interesting about the tool, and I think as it gets developed further, is you can see so many different viewpoints of your ENC program just internally. So you know, one is just my own perspective of my own program, right? Uh, If we have all of our team members take it, we're gonna get a little bit different view of it. If we let HR or legal or internal audit take a view of our ENC program, probably gonna get another view of it. Um, And so what's powerful with that tool is to be able to put all those pieces of information, those different views together, to see really where are you weak potentially in the program, and then how do you address those weaknesses in order to, uh, you know, continuous improvement and so forth. So I think there is a method there in how to identify the weaknesses, and not just from an ENC office, but kind of from your whole corporation, those that have a vested interest in the ENC program, and then take action plans against it, and then improve in
2: those areas. Karen, if I could take that and run with that to ask you the following question, is how would you advise a compliance professional who is uh, questioned by senior management along the lines of, well, if we ID a weakness, isn't that actually either identifying a risk or actually creating a risk for us with the Department of Justice?
3: Yeah, I can see where you might might think that way, but uh, I think government regulators are expecting companies to continuously assess their program and identify weaknesses and come up with an action plan to strengthen that area again to the suns and guidelines you know it- It requires you to to periodically assess the effectiveness of your program. Um, It's in parallel with what we tell our employees. Like, I'd rather you raise an issue to me internally so that I can address it rather than going externally to a a hotline and let the government help us figure this out. I think it's akin to that, that you want to have all the opportunities internally to assess against yourself, as Steve has mentioned, and with this tool. Perhaps as this develops, we'll have industry-type benchmarks and, and U.S. benchmarks, international benchmarks. The possibilities are endless, but you most certainly want to also demonstrate to leadership in your board that you have a process in place where you're continually improving, continually assessing, engaging how you're doing in networking and benchmarking to bring your program at least up to the managing level, if not optimizing.
2: Suzanne, if I could follow up on one of your points, which was the remarks about uh, whistleblowers, or I might even say internal reporting. Uh, In December, or November of last year, there was an academic paper by Dr. Kyle Welch who took a look at uh, whistleblowing and reporting systems and found material savings of companies that had a robust reporting system. Uh, In your remarks, though, I wanted to take it a little step further on whistleblowers. You, You talked about how whistleblowers needed to be treated, but does this tool and the assessment help companies actually move forward to train middle managers, to train people on what to do, and to actually uh, build out or fill out the robust reporting part and the action after the whistleblower report is made?
1: I think it does, and I think it starts with, again, to me, it starts with the, the principle in the HQP report, which, if you guys read the principle having to do with reporters, it's very specific about encouraging, supporting uh, reporters, and then if you read the, the practices underneath, it's very specific about the tone and the details of how reporters are treated, including closing with them in every case. So I think there's there's a lot of detail in the HQP report. And then if you look at the maturity model that's carried through where on that principle you can really see the progression of having programs where you may not have uh, even a, a centralized investigative unit up to the point where there's a, a definite consistent process for touching with reporters and closing with them. So I think there's, you know, it's really something that it bears looking in detail at the report because I think many of us, when you think about um, dealing with reporters and whistleblowers, I think most of us with experience in this field understand that, you know, you, you only get one chance to ensure that they feel heard. And if you're not, if you don't have managers who have a sense of how to intake an issue, you may have lost your opportunity very early in the process. So I think that the HQP report goes into some detail about that, but in the maturity model, we really map that across so that I I think you you can recognize your organization in sort of the path to getting to that point. And I also, I would just emphasize again, what Steve and Karen are saying, one of the values of the maturity model is that you can be very mature on some aspects and not on others. So you could could have a, a look at your program and feel that you're really doing well culturally, you're very engaged with leadership, but you might still think that you don't have the right infrastructure for managing reporters and preventing retaliation. You know, those, those two things could be true within the same program, and I think the maturity model lets you isolate those places where you need to improve and then be able to let third parties understand, hey, we've identified that we have some issues in this space. That's why we're taking action to bring this portion up. So I think the tool gives you the opportunity to really point that out to a third party who's asking you, how are you improving your program? If, if,
0: I could add, if I could add to that, too, I think one of the things that's important about the model is you, you easily couldn't go backwards. So I think you know, sharing the results with an organization is important, and where are you on that maturity curve? But there sometimes is in the business an expectation that you only go north or only forward. I think if, as, as professionals and practitioners, we all know how important Tone at the Top is. And you can imagine if there's a management change at the top in an organization, maybe from the outside, or somebody who's not familiar with your program or your values and comes in with a different viewpoint, you can dramatically go back very quickly on this maturity model. And so I think that's an important concept as you think about how do you use it within your business? How do you communicate it within your business? Be very careful not to set the expectation that it's linear and it just goes upward. It is absolutely a possibility you will go backwards in certain areas based on certain elements.
1: Yeah, and I, and I would say, Steve, just events that happen, you know, well, all of us know things will happen. You have a violation. You have an issue. To me, as, as a third party looking in at the organization, if, the, if your organization's had an issue, I would like to see how your assessment changed based on that issue that you have. And I think this maturity model gives you an opportunity to reflect, okay, this is where we thought we were. Then something happened. We took action. We reassessed where we are and now we have an action plan to move it a different direction. It, it gives you the ability to show that you're taking corrective action.
2: There's a question.
4: So I have a question that may be a little bit unfair, but it has to do with the guidance document that they, was released yesterday. Uh, and I'm not sure how much you've all had a chance to look at it. But I'm wondering if you could comment about where, how much the HQP framework is aligned with that document, and if there are any points of difference where an evaluation under one might lead to a different uh, assessment than an evaluation under the a- HQP program.
0: We so on page it. 12, paragraph two. Can cross reference? No. Um, I, I, I will say that I looked at it really quickly last night, preliminary. Um, Honestly, I did not see much of a disconnect between the guidance and all of the material. If you combine what we have in the framework and the best practices in the back of the HQP, I don't think the HQP team missed anything, so congratulations to you guys. I honestly, when I looked at it, I, I saw there was quite a bit of emphasis on mergers and acquisitions in, M- in the M&A space last night, and I wasn't as comfortable with that when I saw that, knowing not knowing all the details of the tool. Um, so I actually did a little bit of research back into the practices that we had in the original Blue Ribbon panel, and they nailed it. So. Um, I really didn't see much of a disconnect, but again, a very early reading of it, uh, just scanned it, but I didn't, I wasn't. there was nothing there that shocked me or concerned me that we're out of line or there's anything there. It, it, in fact, it was a lot of um, similarity in the, in, certainly in the elements was all there. I don't think we really had missed an element or the right. HQP team didn't miss an element.
1: Yeah, and one other thing, and again, I, I, cursory at best is what I yeah. reviewed yesterday, but there's a lot to it. Um, But the point I would make is the framework that I think uh, the Assistant Attorney General talked about, about is it well-designed, is it well-executed, does it work, that actually, that framework, which came out of the Department of Justice uh, FCPA guidance, that's in the HQP report, in one of the footnotes, there's places where we talk about the overarching guidance documents that are out there, and we refer to that in the report and, and, you know, I think many of us as practitioners, at least my perspective is, those three questions that were posed by the DOJ's FCPA report I thought were very helpful questions. So I think it was exciting that the Assistant Attorney General was using that as the frame. So same, I have the same sense. I, I In my cursory glance, didn't see a lot that seemed contrary. On the other hand, it's a pretty dense document. So I think, obviously, we need to take more time to dig in.
2: Uh, And If I could just follow up on that, I took a deep dive into it, and (laughs) what they both said is correct. What you will find in the 2019 evaluation, really building from uh, the prior uh, evaluation, is a detailed list of questions that you can ask, because remember, they were questions that a prosecutor would ask someone across the table from them who's under an investigation, but they essentially work as points of focus. If you think to the COSO 2013 Internal Controls Framework, it gives you specific data points that you can then reference to the five uh, principles that uh, we've talked about up here. So in tandem, I think they uh, make a great set of documents, but it gives you a roadmap to not only how the prosecutors are going to think, but exactly as Suzanne said, it gives you a way to demonstrate with the framework how we have assessed our program, and how we're moving our program forward with not only continuous monitoring, but if an issue pops up, we have a remediation plan set forth to cover it.
0: I think it also gives us the opportunity to potentially change the questions a little bit in the tool at some point, as we look up against that new guidance. So I think, you know again, it's another great piece of feedback for us um, to see how we can improve the
3: tool. And likewise with the framework, we will assess the new DOJ guidance, and if there's adjustments that are needed or you have suggestions, we're open to that and
1: welcome to continue to hone the tool. And I, I would just throw out, I know Pat has talked about this, but you know, we'll take the Assistant Attorney General of at his word, he wanted feedback. I think it's, it's really important for our group to take a look at it, and to the extent that we have, that we can make a connection for him with the HQP report to say, hey, we really like this section, and there's a lot of support for this in this part of our document. I think that's that would be all to the all to the positive.
2: Uh, any other questions, I think? Up front?
1: Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, This is the first time that I have heard about the HQP assessment, and I find it to be really intriguing. And so when I did mine, it was certainly um, my viewpoint, but I actually spent some time with some people in our organization to look over the questions to make sure that we had a little bit of a consensus. So thank you very much for putting this together. My question is, though, what do you recommend? How frequently should a company Uh, reassess itself. And I understand that we've been talking about when events occur, you want to reassess because things change, and this is never going to be a static instrument to measure ourselves against. But um, as a a rule of thumb, how frequently should we be looking at ourselves and reevaluating how we're doing?
3: I think all three of us probably have a different response to that based on our company, but that's the beauty of these conferences is just to share and benchmark. Um, I'm in aerospace and defense. We have a long history Uh, all the way back to FCPA and (laughs) Defense Industry uh, Index and uh, initiative and and whatnot. So I would say that we have a very mature program, but we're certainly not resting on our laurels. For a number of years, we've had an internal process we call an ethics program assessment, where we take the major chunks of the company. We're 100,000 employees and a very large company. And we'll we'll break it up into key organizations. And we're on about a three-year cycle independently go out and assess that the program is being implemented consistently across the company and look for both best practices and opportunities for improvement and that's just an internal process it's not an audit it's a peer assessment where ethics officers go out and do that Um, we find that to be um, healthy and it's on top of other company-based processes like steering committee meetings where the senior leadership will hear from the ethics team about the program. So there's multiple layers, but for us, um, these, these uh, specific assessments are done on a three-year cycle. That's in addition to the regular board reports, the local steering committee meetings. So for me, we're going to take this information and incorporate it into our existing practice and strengthen the kinds of questions we ask and the areas that we focus on.
0: So slightly different uh, period of time. We we actually do an annual assessment. um, And that usually has visibility to the board. Um, But that assessment is sometimes different each year. Sometimes we look at all the elements. Sometimes we only deep dive into certain elements. But now having this tool, I think this is actually in in how quick you can actually run the tool. Um, I anticipate we'll incorporate this in every year. Um, It will be interesting. As I expect, we'll probably branch it out to, beyond the ENC function over time, um, maybe first or second time out with getting that feel from internal audit, HR. I would love to get it from our kind of our top level ethics and compliance committee that's chaired by our CEO. I would love it someday to be able to have that opportunity to, to get the view from all those business leaders, um, or at least a couple of them as we look at it. So I think it's, um, I, I would probably p- pretty f- feel uncomfortable if I wasn't doing some level of assessment once every two years.
1: Yeah, a much smaller company, U.S. Foods is about 25,000 employees uh, went public in May of 2016. And I would say we, we had a compliance challenge in the early 2000s, had a very robust program, was, had a lot of public exposure at the time that was driving assessments every year. Um, when I came back to the company in 2015. We were doing some reestablishing of the program, and I think now we're really on track to try to establish a regular sequence for assessments. But I would say, similar to Karen, I think internally we're doing our own program assessment through our engagement with leadership. We have the Ethics Leadership Council, which is a subset of the executive committee that we're talking to twice a year. And that's really our internal way of looking at what's our strategy and how are we progressing against it. But I think we're, I'm interested in using the maturity model and also potentially the assessment that you're talking about that ECI is developing in addition to that to begin to do it on more of a every other year or every three year basis and include other functions in the assessment so that we're, we have a little bit more data that we're generating um, on an every other year or every three year basis. But I think the important point is when people talk about assessments, There's sort of a formal assessment. My view is every year you're assessing your program, you're sort of in a constant state of doing that. And at our company, a lot of that is matched up against audit committee reports. We do that every quarter. And we're, we're basically telling the audit committee how things are going, how things are progressing, what's challenging us. So I view that as part of our assessment protocol that really is going to continue every quarter no matter what other formal tools we're using.
2: Any questions? I can't see over here, so I'm not sure if I've missed anyone. Okay, well, Steve, let me follow up on a point you raised in your opening remarks, and that's around. either the future role of the compliance uh, professional or the evolving role of the compliance professional. And with all of the data that is now available, including this assessment tool, do you see the role of the compliance professional uh, staying the same, uh, becoming more important, or changing?
0: Honestly, I think it's becoming more important every day. I think um, we heard this a little bit yesterday in some of the Uh, presentations is that we do have kind of a unique perspective on a corporation because we get to see everything. Um, And oftentimes we get to see all the bad stuff, right, that's happening. We get to come through the helpline or whatever and so we are in a very unique position to help the company, and I think data is a key area for us. Um, and I think we're all trying, we're all struggling with it right now is what's the best way to do it? How do behavioral ethics come into it? How do you look at, you know, can you predict this? Um, how's the artificial intelligence going to work with all of this? Uh, so I think that, I do think it's becoming more and more important um, that the skill sets of, the, of an ENC officer are, you know, driven in a very data-driven manner for management, because as we, I think most people would probably say today, if you can give management not just data, but information, it is extremely powerful on how they can react, how they will react to that in their operations, right? But if you just give them typical charts and ENC metrics that we've done for years, but not really give them information about that, what that means, they really can't do anything with it so how helpful are we being to leadership and to management if we can't kind of identify for them so it's 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 having that seat at the table and i think it was melissa yesterday who said it is you got to kind of be there in more than just an enc role you got to be there as a, a thought leader and looking across the organization and saying hey have you seen this happening in the fraud area or have you seen this coming up in so many internal audit reports i do think that a, that enc has an, a real opportunity to be wanted at that table not assigned to that table but actually they want you in there for your contribution so I think data is going to be a big piece for that as well and I, th- I think the role continues to evolve but I think that's all great for the profession
3: I'd add to that I think in our organization uh, I've seen um, the expansion of being dot connectors again I think that was spoken about yesterday in the in the Carol Marshall panel but uh, for for us um, we started out as an ethics Program and then ethics and compliance, and then uh, we, have, we have an organization that is essentially called Enterprise Assurance. And while there's individual functions inside of Enterprise Assurance, including internal audit and ethics, environmental health and safety, and enterprise risk management, Part of our role as the ethics professionals is to help connect the dots. And Suzanne talked about what is audit doing that might inform what your program objectives are from the ethics and compliance perspective, and are you sharing that data? Certainly you have to maintain confidentiality, and you have to protect the whistleblowers and the reporting parties that come forward, but I'm talking about influencing culturally and identifying risks and connecting the dots. To Steve's point, that gets you the guaranteed seat at the table if you're bringing forward valuable information and solutions and, and uh, suggestions on how to enrich the company and help mitigate some of that risk.
1: Yeah, I, th- I, I really concur. And I think part of the challenge here is to move away from just program assessment, which is important, you know, because there's key elements that you need to be able to deliver and execute well, but ultimately what you're talking about is assessing your enterprise as an ethical organization, and an organization with integrity, and I think these tools are really driving toward that larger picture. It's a diagnostic for your organization, not just for your team, but that's a very challenging role to be the facilitator for an organizational assessment, and that's why I, th- I agree with, with Steve and Karen. We really we have to be at the top of our game to be able to introduce those types of tools to our companies and to, and to say, not only have I assessed my program, but now I want the other functional leaders to look at these questions and assess how they're doing. That's, that's a much bigger piece. And I think that's exactly what we should aspire to because our point is to make ethics and compliance be owned across the organization, but it it really does mean that when you're doing an assessment, it's not just your team anymore. It's really how much have these principles been taken up by the company itself, and that's that's challenging and complex.
3: Could we pivot for a second back? I don't think you... You told the story a couple of times, I don't remember if you just told it now, <laughs> you know, but the qualitative, quantitative aspect of these yeah. measures.
0: Yeah, so I think example I give is company A and company B or business unit A and business unit B. If you just looked at communications and one organization does 24 pieces of communication and, and let's say company B does only three pieces of communication, you could be led through a tool or a formula that says obviously company A is better at communications than company B. But we all know that, again, tone at the top is a big issue. Um, The organization that has 24 pieces of communication, there may be no trust whatsoever in that management. And people don't even read emails that come out. Where the one that does three, there's complete trust all decisions in the company are made up against their values people don't even need and the company don't even need to have another memo about why they made the decision because it's so consistent with their values so that's the kind of analysis that you have to do behind the tool to say does this make sense it, that's why it cannot be formula driven because in many cases you're gonna say company A with 24 pieces of communication is not as effective as the one who only has three and the only reason and, and they only had to have three because the way they communicate about their decisions is so good and aligned with their strategy and their values values That people just get it, so I think that's the other important piece to think about when you get your results. Um, are you looking at it with all the data points around you, not just this set of data points?
3: Yeah. So the qualitative coupled with there is quantitative. How many contacts? What's your anonymous rate? What's your substantiation rate? The types of part the parts of the investigation piece of the process, but subjective and and, and objective. Um, analysis is required for the entire tool. Yeah,
0: and I think if you take it further, I mean, you could have some other metrics in the business that say that tone at the top is strong, but people may be very fearful of actually answering that question appropriately. So you, as an ethics compliance professional, it may be your gut that says, I know that business unit and that business leader. Their their numbers are not as good based on what we see coming in either through the helpline or concerns that are raised. That's where it can get dicey um, and difficult conversations when you have hard metrics that might tell you otherwise, but your gut is telling you those metrics don't make sense with what we're seeing. Those are some of the toughest conversations, but those are the kinds of issues you've got to get under if you're really going to change that culture.
2: Any questions? Um, Suzanne, let me pick up on uh, one of the last points you made and then throw it open to the rest of the panel. Uh, You talked about in communication with senior management, perhaps even to the board of directors, do you find or would you advocate use of the maturity levels in actually communicating uh, to senior management? Do you think that's something that they would readily understand and be able to to translate in a way that would be helpful for information?
1: I definitely think so with the, with the Ethics Leadership Council, the subset of the executive committee that, that I deal with. on at least twice a year. I think it's important to get that to them because I think it's a way for them to translate. They've seen the high-quality report. It's a way for them to translate into a little more practical terms sort of what's the journey uh, to get us to a top-level program. So I think it's very important to talk to them about it. I think you know, I would be hesitant to go to the board or the audit committee before, there had been a lot of conversation internally with my leadership, but we're definitely on a path where I'm beginning to sort of educate them about what's best in class, what does that look like, get them more comfortable with the terms that we use to describe high quality programs, and then hopefully we'll be at a point where we can place ourselves on the maturity model and introduce the notion of potentially doing the assessment that ECI is working on now. So I think there's, there's a natural progression from introducing the report, the maturity model, and then potentially considering using the assessment tool. Um, I think that's a nice, from my perspective, it's a nice pathway to sort of get your management gradually more educated about how to look at best in class.
3: Yeah, um, I, I, we're a company full of engineers, so they never sell a number they don't like, right? Just tell me what it is, what does it mean? How the, but. Uh, I would see this as future state, probably within the probably within the current year. Um, we have the fortune of our SVP, uh, Leo McKay, was one of the members of the Blue Ribbon Panel. Um, group that put it together so no need for socialization there but it has been since 2016 and so he's very interested in how this HQP tool is being developed and what the measurement framework it's going to take a lot of socialization and as we've said from the very beginning this is not an exclusive hey here's your score get the gold pin right it is a piece of the larger puzzle of what we're doing so incorporating it ultimately getting to scores especially man so many of you have already completed Uh, the tool that David Childress has put together, and I think as we continue to grow the volume of users, um, that's going to be a very important benchmark that we're going to be able to use. You should talk a minute about the levels of folks inside your own company that has taken the tool, um, the comparators, because I'm really excited about that, the thought of having business units take it, corporate take it, business areas.
0: Yeah, so I have a a little bit different view as far as how we manage it because we actually do assessments at two levels. We do the corporate compliance program, which is really what this tool is about, but we also do assessments of the business units on maturity as to where they're at in their program. I've learned a lot through that uh, with two different companies having gone through that. Um, I'm now of the opinion, having done that twice, that numerics are good if you don't have tone at the top. But the, the numeric is not really helpful if you do have tone at the top. And um, what I mean by that is if you can't, if, you're, if your ENC program is not getting the attention that it needs, numbers often are competitive between businesses. And they don't want to be seen as lower than the other business unit, right? Even in the world of ethics and compliance. And so what I've learned is a number doesn't mean a lot to the folks in the leadership positions. But what means a lot to them is where we take those reviews. And even though in our kind of back ground formulas and stuff that we use to assess them, we know where we put them on a maturity curve, but we don't tell them you're a 4.6 or a 3.2. That doesn't, it's helpful for them. We tell them what they're missing in their program. How do they move up the maturity? And then we compare them. We also calibrate them between business units. So we make sure that we're fairly looking at those business units. And then why is this one higher than this one? And share with them the reason why one of our highest business units is here is because they do the following things within their how they embed the overall ENC program. So I think that's where I've come to. I've also gotten away from the whole um, the, like the stoplight red, yellow, green. Uh, only from the perspective that I think, I've seen too often that people think when they get to green, they're done. And especially with ethics and compliance programs, you're never done. And so I really don't like that mentality out there of red, yellow, green, that we're okay at green because you can lose some interest. And the fact that you always are, what I said earlier about the fact that your program can go backwards, that is an interesting conversation when you have to tell a business leader that they actually are not scoring as high as they were in the past on their program. Um, and that usually drives. So we, it's, it's all figured into the whole process. So from these results of these conversations should drive their ethics and compliance plan for the following year. That should be what they're focusing, as we talked about earlier, the continuous improvement. How are we showing progress in the program? It's taking these assessments and putting actions against them even at the business unit level of how they can improve.
2: So we've got uh, time for uh, just about one more question. Anybody want to end this up with a question? Well, if not, I will ask, um, we've got just a, like, about three minutes left, so could each person maybe give about 60 seconds of why you think this tool is so valuable and useful to your organization?
1: Again, for me, it's really, it starts with, the foundation, which is the principles themselves, I think, are powerful. And um, they've kind of shown their staying power as as we've gone through these other processes. So to me, that's a powerful starting point to explain what we're really after with ethics and compliance programs. And then if you start with that point and then shift attention to the maturity model, I think what it does is give your leaders a sense of what's the path. What's the potential roadmap um, for where we could be? Um, and that's just a, a, an incredibly valuable tool that has tons of research and support behind it. Um, so it's just a very valuable tool to be able to open the conversation with your leadership about you know, how can we get to best in class or the class that our company needs to be uh, for where we are in our, in our journey. So I I feel fortunate that we have these tools to be able to start that conversation. Karen?
3: Yeah, I I feel the same. I I started by advocating for this document uh, along with Blue Ribbon Panel. It's just so valuable to be able to not feel like you're operating in a vacuum and just within your own culture, but to see this collection of people both for the Blue Ribbon Panel Report, the HQP, and then the Toolkit. You have a variety of influences from a variety of industries and and practitioners, and it's just a real useful tool to just check yourself. Don't have to adopt everything, don't even have to agree with everything, but go in there and cherry pick what is going to work to just, just a little bit of incremental improvement year over year, and you'll be amazed at
0: the impact on your program. Steve? Yeah, I'd have to say it was uh, just a huge confirmation last night when I went over to the Genius Bar and said, hey, you know, has anybody else other than myself done it for our company? Because uh, we have a number of colleagues here. And uh, they said, yeah, actually three people have done it. And I said, can we, can we look at those results? And they showed it to me. And I said, isn't that interesting? Because it confirmed for me, for the first time that I saw the data last night, it confirmed for me because the three people that completed, I came with more of the global perspective of the program, but we had somebody who completed it who's on a regional level, and we had somebody who was actually in the business unit who completed it. So it was to see that how they actually rated it, and we were not all on the same line, <laughs> but what I would tell you, the differences that I saw made a lot of sense. One of those businesses is one that has had a lot of attention to ANC, and their program looked very good on that. And it should be, that's where they actually are at. The regional perspective, because they have multiple business units, of which that business is one of them, but they have multiple business units that they're looking, it didn't show up quite as good, I would expect that. So it really helped validate for me, the internal perspective of where we're at, and are we reading it correctly or not? And now it gives us an opportunity to to talk with the region, talk with the businesses themselves, and see how we can improve the entire program. So I was very pleased to see the results of it yesterday.
2: And I'd just like to give one more shout out for the Genius Bar. If you have any questions, uh, check out the Genius Bar. There's lots of information, there are lots of resources, and there's some geniuses there that can answer your (laughs) questions. So with that, could you give our panelists a round of applause? This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation about the ECI HQP, the high-quality program in the framework assessment. I'm going to link to it in the show notes and where you can get more information on both of these. I'm going to do additional work on this, including an upcoming five-part podcast series with David Childers on this very important topic and how you can use it to create a much more robust compliance program for your organization. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report.
3: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.